Welcome to Northern Latitudes. I'm Bill Alt. And today in episode three, we talk to Gerald Kootenay, social media provocateur and the outspoken critic of climate deniers online. The originator of the climate brawl hashtag on Twitter, Gerald was in fine fighting form when we spoke to him. We started our conversation off with oil after a tweet earlier in the day by Gerald, after he had just been released from Twitter jail. My name is Gerald Kootenay. I've been working for the last decade or so studying the politics of the climate crisis. I've written a peer-reviewed book called Carbon Politics and the Failure of the Kyoto Protocol, and currently working on another one about the impact of climate denialism on American politics. I'm a commentator on mainstream media and also social media. And on Twitter, I'm the originator of the hashtag climate brawl. I have a PhD in chemistry and I'm a fellow of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. Thanks, Joe. Climate Brawl. Well, first of all, welcome back from Twitter jail. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and I'm going to start right in with Twitter. You tweeted something this morning. I always thought climate deniers were the worst and they probably still are, but oil apologists are giving them a run for their money. Jerking what happens especially if, if you're associated with big oil, however you're associated with big oil, is that it doesn't matter what happens in the world, it's never their fault. They will do anything to keep on promoting the use of fossil fuels. And it's one thing big corporations promote their products, but this has gone way beyond that. Going back in time for the last 30 years, big oil has put out the biggest propaganda campaign in history to attack the science of climate change and to do anything not to reduce the production of, of their products. What's happened now with the war in the Ukraine? It's the fault of renewable energy. This is all associated with those evil greenies out there that force Putin's hand. And, and look at poor Germany. You know, they've been screwed because of renewable energy. Well, I can tell you, outside of the oil sector, no one else believes that. If anything, the oil sector is a cause. It's fossil fuels that are causing this problem. And so if anything, the, the conflict in the Ukraine, if you're looking for more geopolitical causes besides Putin just going off on this tangent to what he's doing, it's related to the use of fossil fuels. Here in Canada, everyone's saying, oh, we can solve the problem of Putin by shipping LNG across the ocean to Europe and save them. My stomach just turns when I hear talk like that. You know, from a practical point of view, it, it, it's, it's not going to happen. And from another point of view, it's not true. This whole conflict isn't based around that. And at the same time, what the oil industry especially loves right now is no one's talking about climate change. We're talking about whether we should be using more fossil fuels than we were using before. This is a dream come true. This is a wet dream for, for, for big oil and the oil apologists right now. 
And so they're going out there right now and again, touting their usual propaganda. And now they're being aggressive saying, oh, the only way we can save Europe and save the world and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, more oil, more oil, more oil. So yeah, they've, they've twisted this whole thing into just another way to sell oil. Do you think there's any possibility that it'll be, it'll be used as a, to do the opposite? Is there any chance that this could lead down a better path? It's an interesting question. I would say the most direct impact of a better path, this should be part of it. Because face it, renewables, there are no pipelines for wind. There are no pipelines for solar. So you get around that argument that's put forward about natural gas pipelines, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But probably a greater impact is the greatest enemy, and this is a strange one, by the way, the greatest enemy to, to the oil and gas industry is too high a price for oil. That's the whole impetus of what the carbon tax is doing, is to increase the price of using petroleum-based products. And that gives more of a chance for renewables to be much more competitive. Right now, it's one thing when oil is too low, but I think a lot of people within the oil industry themselves are getting quite nervous about what's happening to the price of oil and how high it may go. Because in the long run, that's going to destroy that industry. It has nothing to do with climate change, which should be enough to do it all on its own. It's simply, it's not going to be practical for people to use. Right. So there has, there's been a lot of call for, from the usual suspects, we'll call them, um, to roll back the carbon tax. Yeah. You brought up another topic that, you know, you just can't believe. Suddenly, well, a year and a half ago, two years ago, Oh, and industry was all so concerned about the lower income families in Canada and how horrible it was that this carbon tax was hurting the poor the most. The one thing they always forget, and especially the politicians, again, Pierre Polyev and Jason Kenney are the worst of the worst on this. Uh, Doug Ford isn't much better in, in Ontario, is that they forget about the carbon, the climate incentive on your federal income tax. Yeah. The carbon tax is revenue neutral. Basically all of it's sent back to the provinces it's taken from. And the ones that first of all have the greatest, most threatened by climate change and the climate crisis are lower income people. They also have the least consumption of fossil fuels as well. And so the average person especially in lower income, they actually make money off the so-called carbon tax. The price in carbon in Canada is a fee and dividend. And so they charge the fee, but then they pay it back to people. And so you also brought up another point is that, well, again, the fossil fuel industry, we are so concerned about those poor lower income people. That was, by the way, until we just decided to increase the price of oil by 50%. You don't hear them talking about that anymore. That's because they don't care. This is all propaganda on their part. The price of oil has gone up, I don't, or gasoline, I don't know by how much, 50% in the last few months, in yes. some places even more. We're talking about, as you mentioned, a total price on carbon of 11 cents per liter, not including any rebate on your federal income tax form. Right. And 
in the last year, people are talking about taxes generally. How many, how much have the taxes gone up in the past year? Whether, wherever they're from, federal, provincially, the carbon tax, zero. April 1st, as you mentioned as well, the tax will be raised by two cents per liter to 11 cents. And there is Jason Kenney standing up there and saying, I'm going to protect the people of Alberta. I'm going to stop the carbon tax, even though I'm sure it's against the law. I don't care. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to protect you. Uh, but Mr. Kenney, what about the 50% increase in gasoline prices? Oh, no, that's okay. They're my friends. You have to take this all with a grain of salt. The problem is these people are powerful. There are elected government officials. They have extreme reach to the general public that completely distorts what the truth is out there. And it, it's sad to see that from people that are supposed to be taking care of us and not taking care of one lousy industry. Your hashtag that was because of you was climate roll. What got you going down this path? Because I mean, you, you brawl every day, every day, you know, so what, what, what got you headed down this path on social media? I started challenging climate deniers on Twitter in a big way. I can't remember exactly, maybe 2014, 2015. And why I was upset was looking at, at Twitter was that climate deniers were attacking science with lies and propaganda and nothing else absolutely nothing else. But this was catching on. Some of the higher profile climate deniers on Twitter have tens of thousands of followers. And I look at this and I say, what in hell is going on? When I first started, I did what a lot of supporters of the science do. I try to, I see a tweet by someone that was BS, plain and simple. And I say, well, here is a paper or here is an article from the IPCC or NASA or whatever that says you're wrong. And I did that for a couple of years and it didn't seem to have a big impact on these guys because what they would do is saying, well, I don't believe your, your reference or, well, what about this? What about this? And you start getting into an endless game and that's what they want. They want to debate the science, Twitter, anywhere. Why do they want to debate? because that gives the impression there is a legitimate debate out there on the science. And there's not. The science has been accepted for decades. And some guy on Twitter that has no training about the climate science, blabbering that he found a graph at a climate denial blog site or somewhere with a 30 second Google search is just laughable. When it came to climate brawl itself, it was in 2018. And I was in a, one of my typical debates with a very high profile one. It was Scott Adams. And Scott Adams is the cartoonist who's behind Dilbert, who I, I hate to say this, I love Dilbert. I think it's a fantastic cartoon. But he is a pretty hardcore climate denier with lots and lots of followers. Yeah. Well, I remember one weekend, I literally had uh, over 100,000 engagements over a long weekend especially with his followers. They came out, there was a horde of them out there. And it's kind of addictive when you first get into this. You know, I could have just stopped, 
not me, of course, I just kept on going, but I was exhausted when it was over. And I thought, there's lots of people out there, I can see them on Twitter that would like to help, but I have no way of contacting them. And then after a few more engagements like that, I thought, well, I'm going to put out a hashtag. I, I barely knew what hashtags were at the time. And I had never put one out. And I said, I want to put out like a bat signal that you put that out and you shine it out there in the Twitterverse saying, hey, I'm stuck with this horrible engagement with all these rotten climate deniers. Come in and join me and let's, let's show them what we really should be showing them. And so I put out Climate Brawl. And amazingly, it stuck. And what happened was now we have thousands of people on Twitter that follow Climate Brawl. And you're no longer alone because that's the problem with the Twitterverse. The other side, the climate deniers, the high profile guys, their followers, they are so dedicated to the guy they're following. They will come out and, and swarm you whenever they come out. In the three years now, it's over three years that Climate Brawl has been out. That's almost all disappeared because if they start coming out, we just come out stronger against them. It has changed Twitterverse. It really has for, for the better. The climate deniers are still there, but a lot of the stuff they tweet has sort of disappeared. They just stay with the normal babbling and the insults and stuff like that, which I love, by the way, because when they do that, all they're doing is discrediting themselves. We'll be right back. It's become clim climate denial. It's become truth denial. It's become all these things. I mean, obviously we can blame the social medium itself, but do you think there's more of a reason for it? Yeah, there, there, there's some solid reasons behind for it. And as you described, it, it's an infodemic related to the pandemic. Science denialism has existed for centuries. Climate denialism is a, is a branch of science denialism that's really come into its own in the new millennium. It really started in, uh, in the administration of George H.W. Bush when big oil came out with that giant propaganda campaign they mentioned earlier on. It started around 1990-1989. They hired some of the top PR for firms in the world to attack the science of climate change. That campaign has now existed for over three decades. And the oil industry is still promoting that. Now, they are very powerful. It's very persuasive. What's been very receptive to that message is the political right. And that's basically driven by believing in small government. And it's very easy for to twist the message of the science of climate change that somehow this is going to affect their liberty and their freedom, which is a ludicrous suggestion. It's climate change that is, is affecting their freedom and their liberties going forward. But these PR propaganda campaigns promoted the opposite. And then some very high profile, especially in the US, but now in Canada as well, and Australia and other countries, where some high profile Republican members 
became leading cheerleaders for this message that was coming out from big oil. So again, it was reinforced by politicians. And so today you look at it, the GOP, which stands for the gas and oil party, by the way, not grand oil party, is certainly all in for climate denialism. We're no different here in Canada. The right. Conservative Party of Canada actually voted against of accepting the science of climate change. I actually am not aware of anyone in the world actually voting, officially voting against the science of climate change. And you listen to people like Jason Kenney, like Pierre Polyev, like Doug Ford. It, it, it's so frustrating. Politicians are not supposed to judge science. Scientists do. Politicians have a very important role to play. It's not up to scientists to tell the politicians what to do. Scientists are supposed to communicate the problem and try to give solutions that politicians can choose from. They've been doing that for decades now. The first IPCC report came out in 1990 or whatever. But what the politicians are doing, they're still arguing whether, well, we don't believe the science. They don't have that right. They don't have the credentials. They should focus on what their jobs are. And it's not to tell us that they don't believe the science. Where do you think we're going in the next, let's say, seven years? Because 2030 is the first kind of target that most countries have put forward for greenhouse gas reduction. What do you see happening in the next eight years? The one thing that's very important is that if politics, politicians keep arguing about the science instead of what, what to do, and by the way, I'm open on what the options are. Okay, that truly is, there should be discussions and there isn't one universal answer to the climate right. crisis. But if we waste our time and not having sincere discussions about what to do, and we're arguing about the science per se, we're freaked. Okay, nothing's going to happen. We're going to be in the same boat that we are right now. Look at the United States. Laws are passed and regulations are passed by Congress. They have never passed one to deal with the climate crisis, not one. Any action that's been taken in the US has, has been by pres presidential decree. And that's why they can be kicked out by the next president, they come in. If Congress doesn't get on board, in Canada, we're sort of a laggard. This wasn't so true in Canada, maybe a decade or so at all. But it's almost like the Conservatives are trying to catch up to the Republican people they support in the US and trying to become more and more like them every day. It's just disgusting what's going on. And so what you have to do is that the climate crisis should be a bipartisan issue. And we want to encourage that. The polarization of politics in many Western nations today has made that virtually impossible. Hopefully something will happen to break that roadblock because without it, it's gonna be very, very difficult. In the meantime, the general public, a bunch of them are confused about everything because of what's going around here on these political discussions. And mainstream media hasn't helped that much. It's trying to do better job now in the past, it's been a disaster. 
If anything, they end up supporting denialism more than they did the science. But still we exist in a society where the public is confused. When you look at social media, it's more of a reflection of what's out in the more global real world. And there's no restrictions in social media. You can blurt anything you want, anytime you want. And so it's usually more extreme than the general populace is. So what I see on Twitter isn't really a direct reflection of the real world, but it's, it is still a reflection. It shows the stuff that we have to try to overcome. And you always will find that when people are on the extremes, there's like 200 million people that use Twitter. The amount of climate deniers, hardcore climate deniers on Twitter are trivial, but they're loud and they're aggressive. And so they seem to be much more than they are. And by doing that, again, they influence other people that may be more on the neutral side saying, oh, this must be real because look at all the attention that it's given right now. The one thing I like to stress on how to move forward with, with climate change, the greatest enemy to climate change, doing something about it, is the silent majority. And unfortunately, I think that's true for many things, but it's true about climate change as well. If you're a member of the silent majority on the climate crisis, you're an enabler of climate denialism. Yeah, we've seen that. Well, I mean, we have a Canadian example, the recent protests in Ottawa, where the silent majority just didn't do enough pushing back right from the beginning to say, hey, this is not what the majority of us think. How do we start swinging those people? I believe that you can't change people's ideology. Okay, right. that would take decades. Yeah. And I accept yeah. that. And it, and it doesn't make it wrong because their ideology is different than mine. Propaganda, that is wrong. Especially on the scale that we've seen. In politics, you always have lies and propaganda being shown but it's just taken over what's happened. And so I spend my time trying to attack the propaganda. We have to somehow shut that down. Oh my God, did he just say shut down propaganda? That's against our liberty, that's against freedom of speech. Jordan Peterson's going to be all over me for saying that. That's anti-Canadian, Pierre Pauly ever fighting for freedom in Canada. By the way, that's the biggest joke. You've probably seen his ads. He's fighting for freedom for Canada. Freedom to smile in Saskatchewan. I, I must admit something. I didn't think freedom was a problem in, in Canada. What is a problem is calling something like a freedom convoy had anything to do with freedom for the hooligans that came into Ottawa and held this downtown city hostage for like three weeks. That was an infringement, the greatest infringement on, on freedom in, maybe in the last 20, 30 years or longer in Canada. But there you have Candace Bergen and... Pierre Polyev and Andrew Scheer and the rest of the high profile conservatives saying, boy, these guys were representing and supported freedom in Canada. That is just disgusting. How do we change that? We change it in the voting booth. Because we're not going to change Pierre Polyev. We're not going to change anyone in the Conservative Party. And so the key is you show in your in, when you vote. Now that's hard because we have like four or five major parties in Canada now. So it's become much more diverse. And the US is a little right. bit simpler. You only have two, but that, there's terrible problems with that aspect as well. 
But really, if we're going to move forward, it's up to people. I hate to say there's one issue when it comes up to election, because there's always a whole pile of important things that have to be done. I have a non-starter right away. I will never tell people what political party to vote, but I will tell you what party not to vote for. And you never, never, never vote for a climate denier. And so that means the PPC is out. They're out for a whole power reasons. And the CPC is no different. The CPC, the old Conservative Party, would not have tolerated what's going on today. They're one, ones that led some of the initial movement. And, and the sad part is they, these people aren't dumb. They're highly educated and they're still doing what they're doing. It makes no sense because by not willing to do something about the climate crisis, they are increasing the risk of every single person in Canada and in the world. And how in hell can someone be a politician representing people with an attitude like that? What do we do to get climate at the forefront of this? Like, what's the messaging? Like, how do we get it to be the forefront of these elections? Because without addressing this, the reality is nothing else really matters. I mean, you're, you're, we're headed down a path where, you know, we can talk about jobs and we can talk about inflation and we can talk about all these other things. But this is quickly changing. I mean, you, you know, look, look what's happened to Australia in the last few years. Look what's happened in BC in the last year or two years. I mean, this is really starting to ramp up and accelerate. And it's still not top of agenda. I mean, it's it's really not. I must admit that I, I don't have a magical solution. I wish I did. I, I wish there was some button we could press and people would see it. I do believe there is a change in the direction of a lot of people in the world on their attitudes towards the climate crisis. That's contributed by activism, the IPCC reports, the, what they're seeing with their own eyes as things go along. I'm hoping it's the type of thing that you nudge, you nudge, you nudge, and finally it starts taking a life of its own. That is what's going to have to happen. Now, whether that life of its own is going to happen in the next year or two or longer, I actually have no idea. But what we must never, never do is stop trying. And so the only message I have to everyone is do something. It's whatever you feel comfortable doing, okay? You don't have to go down the street with a, with a billboard saying the end is near or stuff like that. In fact, actually, it's a lousy thing to say. <laughs> do what you feel comfortable with. You know, we have like 38 million people in Canada. We are the one that elects the government in this country. And so we, have, we hold the ultimate power when it comes what's going to be done about the climate crisis. And so we have to try, we have to try, we have to try. There's three things that individuals do. They have to act. And that's acting on what we personally do. We reduce our own greenhouse gas emissions, which is great. That's very positive. It's corporations and government, though, that has to do the heavy lifting on this one, though. We cannot do that on our own. We must engage. You and I are engaging today. I try to engage on Twitter every single day. And the third one is the vote. 
And so what we have to do is we have to keep on doing those three things and keep on pushing until things change. They will change. The one thing people have to be careful of, there's lots of dates and stuff like 2030, 2050. The thing that people forget is that climate change will keep on getting worse until we stop the greenhouse gas emissions. So if let's say 2030 rolls around and we've done worse than we've done today, it's not say, oh, well, we missed a deadline and we're just stuck with it. No, you're still gonna have the same problem that you had before because in 2035 and 2040, it's gonna be worse than it was in 20. You can't win this game. Right. This is a no win game. It's not that you suddenly you say, okay, we have this new lousy climate that we have to live with for the next century. It doesn't work that way. At the same time, it's not that on a certain date, the world comes to an end. The world is not going to come to an end. Human, humanity is not going to become extinct. What is going to happen is the longer we take, every second we take longer, more death and destruction is going to take place. And the two are not the same thing. So the important thing is we have to have to react. Earlier on, we were talking about adaptation and mitigation. We have to do mitigation. That is how you stop it. But because we have failed to take proper mitigation after all these decades, we also have to waste money into adaptation. And waste is that we shouldn't have done it, had to do it if we'd done proper mitigation to begin with. But now that we're in such a pickle right now, it's essential that we also have to spend money on adaptation. Adaptation allows us to survive. Mitigation is what solves the problem. Gerald Kootenay is a mainstream and social media commentator and the originator of the Climate Brawl hashtag. You can find Gerald on Twitter at Gerald Kootenay. Kootenay is K-U-T-N-E-Y. That's it for episode three. Thanks to producers Sarah Simpson and social marketing whiz Alina Simpson for their help this week. Our music is from John Sanfilippo and Titan Sound, based in Kingston. I'm your host, Bill Alt, helping you find your way to northern latitudes. <laughs> <laughs>